0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm David Levy. Here today, we have a full complement of co-hosts, including Adam Grossworth,
1: Christy Bauer, and Michal Richardson.
2: I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question.
0: I am so embarrassed about this, and I really thank uh, one of our listeners for pointing this out on Twitter. In the Lou Rawls episode, I confused... Two different turn of the century songs that got their second wins thanks to MGM musicals when discussing ukulele lady. The song quoted at the end of Ukulele Lady is not Abadaba Honeymoon, but rather Under the Bamboo Tree, which you might remember from the 1944 film Meet Me in St. Louis.
3: If you like a me like I like a you and we like a both the same. I like a same this very day. I like to change your name.
0: The song was originally from 1902 by the African American vaudeville performers Bob Colden, the Johnson brothers, who are J. Rosamond Johnson, pianist and singer, and James Weldon Johnson, pianist, guitarist, and lawyer. By the time Cole and the Johnsons teamed up, Cole had already reached great success as a performer, co writer, and producer of A Trip to Coontown, the 1897 musical, which is considered to be the first musical entirely created and owned by black showmen. Uh, I believe Under the Bamboo Tree originated in Colden Johnson's vaudeville act but it was interpolated into the 1902 musical Sally in Our Alley for Irish-American actress Mary Cahill, for whom it became a signature song. So, unlike my defense of Abba Honeymoon, I have a harder time with the racism of Under the Bamboo Tree. Maybe when performed by its black writers, the song story of a, quote, Zulu from Matabulu, who falls in love with, quote, a maid of royal blood, though dusky shade, and courts her in pidgin English, is maybe Okay but I think it's significantly less okay when performed by an Irish Broadway star or by Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien. Anyway, the reference to Under the Bamboo Tree is part of Ukulele Lady as written. It was not a later interpolation by the Muppets, so do with that as you will.
4: In a much simpler but equally embarrassed correction in the Elton John episode, I screwed up the lyrics to your song. And while I did so in the process of ragging on Bernie Taupin, I really do love that song, and I did not intentionally make the lyrics worse. I regret the error. First of all, hi everybody. I missed you last week. I'm excited to hear that episode. We are here this week to talk about season two, episode 17, Julie Andrews. It was produced November 23rd to 25th, 1977. Not really relevant, but hey, that was Thanksgiving. And there was a Kermit balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, uh, which there still is most years. uh, And this was its debut in 1977. According to Muppet Wiki, uh, we don't usually talk about the UK air dates, but according to Muppet Wiki, the episode aired in the UK on December 25th, 1977. This would be a super fast turnaround. uh, And also, given the UK tradition of Christmas episodes, I'm wondering if this would have actually aired on Christmas Day, but also with Julie Andrews. So maybe. And I have no great way to fact check that because all of my primary source materials are American. So British listeners, if you've got something on this, uh, let us know. Um, It aired in New York a couple months later on February 20th, 1978. Not a super exciting night of television, but we do have the fourth annual People's Choice Awards. Were we ever so innocent? And um, the ABC TV movie was called Wild and Wooly this description is from the ad which we will put in the show notes three fearless flowers of the old west turn into the world's most luscious undercover law women and expose a plot to kill the president if their guns don't get the bad guys a little lovin' and will and according to the cast list at the bottom of the ad jessica walter is in this she might be one of the three leads but i, I actually can't tell because like i'm not used to seeing jessica walter young they all have it's all that it's that thing right like, they're all in sort of period costumes but with um like incredibly 70s hair they look like charlie's angels it's a western in case you didn't get that i'm not gonna watch it but (laughs) oh my god (laughs) there it is i
0: want to watch it yesterday
4: (laughs) please please do and i want to
0: option it and turn it into a musical
4: we can (laughs) we can spread the tv movies around david please watch it and report back
1: and please tell us what role jessica walter plays I can only picture her exaggerated wink from Arrested Development. Right. When the ad says, if their guns don't get the bad guys, a little love and will.
4: <laughs> Giant <laughs> wink. It's an Archer crossover. <laughs> She's actually Mallory Archer in the past. Um, all right, introduce the guest star, David, and I'll go look this up while you do that. To
2: introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to
0: you. Dame Julie Andrews, DBE, is an English actress, singer, and author. Much like Elton John, I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you have at least a passing familiarity with Julie Andrews as that lady from Mary Poppins, The Sound of Music, or maybe even The Princess Diaries. But I didn't read both volumes of her memoirs to skimp on the biographical details here. She was born Julia Elizabeth Wells in October 1935 in the English town of walton on thames Her parents divorced and remarried when Julie was still pretty young. Her mother and stepfather performed on the British vaudeville circuit, and by the time she was 10 years old, Julie was performing with them. Although Julie preferred her father and stepmother's home, they all agreed that her mother and stepdad were better situated to nurture her talent, so she ended up in their home and taking on her stepfather's surname of Andrews. In 1948, at age 13, Julie became the youngest solo performer ever to be seen at a royal variety performance before King George VI, alongside future Muppet Show guest Danny Kay. There are clips of this performance on YouTube, which I found pretty spectacular. Uh, There's actually an incredible trove of Julie Andrews material on the wonderful, if questionably legal channel, Julie Andrews Archive. We will include a link to it in the show notes. Definitely worth checking out if you want to see uh, pretty much anything Julie Andrews has ever done. Before she turned 15, she was performing on British television and appearing on the West End in pantomimes. In 1954, just before turning 19, she had her first big break in America as the lead in the Broadway production of the British musical, The Boyfriend. That may sound familiar to listeners who remember that Twiggy starred in the dreadful movie adaptation. This opened up all sorts of doors for her, including starring in the television musical High Tour opposite Bing Crosby and, most importantly, landing the leading role in the original production of My Fair Lady, for which she was nominated for a Tony Award. While appearing in the show, she made television history starring in the original version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella with Muppet Show guest star Kay Ballard, which was the most-watched television broadcast in history at that point. She followed that by launching a recording career that has left a shockingly shallow footprint very little of her solo recording work is currently available outside of the Julie Andrews archive on YouTube, even though she made quite a few albums over several decades. She would also bring My Fair Lady to London. In the late 50s, she became a familiar variety show guest and made a memorable television special with her friend and future Muppet Show guest star, Carol Burnett, called Julie and Carol at Carnegie Hall. There's an album. That one is still available. It is delightful.
2: It's so good. <laughs>
0: co They would periodically reteam for concert specials throughout their lives. In fact, I think we're overdue for another one. I can't believe we didn't get Julie and Carol on Zoom sometime in the last couple of years.
1: Right? Oh man, the world needs this. Right? In 1959,
0: she married her childhood sweetheart, Tony Walton, who at this point was on the brink of launching quite a career of his own in the arts. He would go on to win three Tony Awards for Best Scenic Design and an Oscar and an Emmy, each for Best Art Direction. Julie rang in the 60s by returning to Broadway with another musical by the team that wrote My Fair Lady. Camelot, which we talked about on the Zero Mostel episode because he did a number from it on The Muppet Show. In 1962, she would welcome her first daughter, Emma Walton, who grew up to be a writer and would collaborate with both of her parents on a number of projects from picture books to a Netflix series. Julie was passed over for the movie version of My Fair Lady by studio head Jack Warner, who thought she wasn't famous enough, but she got the last laugh when Walt Disney cast her as Mary Poppins, the role for which she would win the Oscar and the Golden Globe the latter of which she dedicated to Jack Warner in her acceptance speech.
2: So petty. I love it. (laughs) It's it's awesome. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Her husband, Tony Walton, would also work on Mary Poppins as costume designer, set designer, and visual consultant, earning him an Oscar nomination, too. Hollywood took hold of Julie, and she would be primarily associated with the silver screen for the next three decades. She followed Mary Poppins with the film The Americanization of Emily, which established her range. Next came The Sound of Music, and then Hawaii, Torn Curtain, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Star, which is where her performance of Burlington Birdie from Bo comes from, if you remember that. How could we forget? Yeah. (laughs) At that point, she and Tony Walton divorced, mostly because her career in the movies and his career in the theater kept them apart. They remain good friends and collaborators to this day. She soon began her collaboration with writer-director Blake Edwards with the film Darling Lily. Edwards would eventually also become her second husband. In the 60s, Julie also began starring in occasional specials on television, which would eventually lead to her own variety show in 1972. That show was produced by Lou Grade, producer of The Muppet Show, and a number of her specials involved collaborating with Jim Henson and The Muppets. So it was sort of inevitable that she would end up as a guest star on The Muppet Show when the time came. If I may whine a bit, Julie Andrews did so many appearances with The Muppets, yet they don't get any coverage in her books beyond a mention that they happened to be there. I mean, even her most recent Netflix series, Julie's Green Room from 2017, was a collaboration with the Jim Henson Company. Clearly, she had a good experience and built strong relationships. That didn't merit inclusion in either of her books? I don't get it. Anyway, I feel like I've gone long enough. She would go on to write a number of children's books, plus her two memoirs, do a lot more movies, including SOB, which I watched last week, in which she famously bears her breasts to once again break out of her children's entertainer box more TV series and specials, including some with the Muppets. She would return to the stage, famously refused a Tony Award nomination when she was the only one nominated from the stage version of Victor Victoria. She would lose her voice, she would regain her voice, and she's still around, still writing and occasionally performing. The Kermit and Podcast has done really good episodes on her various specials with the Muppets, so if you want to learn more about those, I recommend checking them out. All right, who has Julie Andrews' thoughts and feelings?
1: I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. (laughs) I heard from friends who studied theater at NYU that the way to not have to do your readings for your history of musical theater class is to watch the early 2000s PBS documentary series, Broadway, The American Musical, hosted by Julie Andrews. So whenever I hear the name Julie Andrews, I can't not do my impression of my friend's impression of his friend's impression of (laughs) the experience of watching that series. So, okay. Here's what happens when somebody says Julie Andrews in front of me. I'm Julie Andrews. Forty years ago, I bought a pantsuit, and I'm still wearing it today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I mean, Julie Andrews does have a great voice for narration, which makes the audiobooks of her memoirs extra good. If you're into that sort of, thing. yeah.
4: I mean, and she's great. She's a she does a voiceover on Bridgerton. It's probably her most recent credit, and she's you know just she's just perfect. Right. She's, and she's like, I mean, I, you know, this is not a, a rare thing. Like, right. But, you know, I grew up with Mary Poppins, um, sound of music less. so. Um, I'm like, one of I, those
2: people too. And I find that Julie Andrews people like fall into either the sound of music box or
1: the Mary Poppins box. I'm a thing. Mary
0: Poppins person.
4: I feel like yeah. for a lot of people it's both, but, but yeah, yeah it's not, not both, but
1: um, much more Mary Poppins for me.
4: Yeah. I just, you know, and just like just the sound of her voice is just so calming <laughs> and soothing. Um, <laughs> But, you know, she can also be, she can be very funny. She can be very, you know, she, she's a human, she's an adult human being and an actor who can play lots of roles. And I also love her when she breaks out of that box, as David said. I'm sad I never got, I've never gotten to see her live. Like there've been, you know, a couple, she's done a couple things in New York in my adult-ish theater going lifetime. And I just didn't get to either of them. But she is great. Um, I've never, I've never read any of her children's books, but one of them was adapted into a stage musical, The Great American Mousical, which was done at Goodspeed. Shout out yet again to, to me seeing children's theater at Goodspeed in Connecticut for some reason. Um, <laughs> it was a delight. And she directed that production. She didn't adapt it for the stage, but then she directed it. And and she, I just I was in I was in the room with her, <laughs> did not talk to her, did not see her, but like fully geeked out just about being in her presence because it's Julie Fucking Andrews. But that show was a delight. I assume the book is as well, and so I love that she had this other phase of her career. That show didn't really go anywhere. So if anybody listening is a theater producer or licenser, find it. It's delightful. <laughs> I don't know what happened with it.
0: Yeah, I had no idea until reading her memoir that her career as a children's book author goes back since before any of us were born. Like, she started writing books in the early 70s. So, this is not the situation where it's like a famous person has a one off lark is like, oh, I'm going to throw my name in a children's book. Like, it's the thing that she's pursued seriously in parallel with her stage and screen work, which is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize it either. I always thought that it was, you know, something new to do once she had lost some of her vocal range or wasn't performing as much. But no, it's always been there.
0: The other thing that really impressed me about her, which I don't think I knew about, is She was very, very involved in the 70s with activism around Vietnam. Not so much anti-war activism, but activism about taking care of the people who were affected by the war and the refugees. She herself has two daughters who were adopted from Vietnam. Uh, One of the specials that she did with the Muppets was a fundraiser for one of the charities that helped out victims of the war. My general impression of her from her work is not particularly political. So it was really interesting to see that that's actually been a big part of her life, you know, behind the scenes.
4: Christy,
2: overall impressions. This really felt like a season one episode to me. A pretty good season one episode, but like between the jug band number and there being a talk spot and a number that happened at the dance, even if it wasn't an at the dance, it had that sort of familiarity to it it's not necessarily a bad thing you know julie loves the muppets and the muppets love julie so like that energy is it kind of elevates it so it's it's slightly better than just okay but the only true gripe i i have is that i mostly wanted better songs like especially with julie andrews i'm like oh we're gonna get such good songs and (laughs) we'll get into it uh we 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 get some okay songs David. Yeah, I was already
0: to say, like, oh, this episode was so much fun. I loved it so much. And then Christy started reminding me of all the things that I didn't like in the episode. So, <laughs> uh, you know, listen, it left a great impression overall, even though, like, oh, this might be my second least favorite jug band number after Mississippi Mud. But I love a live animal appearance. What can I say?
4: <laughs> That's all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree that this could have used uh, better songs or slightly different pacing, but also man, it's fucking Julie Andrews this episode and Julie Andrews just make you feel good all over I mean I I also thought it might have behooved them to butter us up with a few more cow puns but Boo. I wasn't there <laughs>
4: uh it's a weird one on the most positive one yeah I I to Christy's point I um the pacing like the flow of the episode felt weird uh, and I'll, we'll, I'll get into why I felt that a little bit later I love this episode I I, I think this is partly a nostalgia thing I have a I just have a, a lifelong soft spot and fond memories of this episode and I, I got nervous turning it on because of the Alton John experience but but it held up for me. I, I really I really do love it. I, I guess I would I would just want more Julie Andrews. But yeah, no, I really like it. So let's get into it. Julie Andrews uh, fifteen seconds to curtain Miss Andrews. Thank
3: you. Thank you. I'll be ready. I'll be ready just so long as nobody else drops
1: in. Woo <laughs> So as we open the show, uh, Julie will be ready as long as nobody else drops in and naturally numerous monsters drop onto her from, I guess, the ceiling of her dressing room. That's fine. Gonzo's trumpet during the theme song lights up while the the lights around him dim to some mood lighting. Looks very charming. and Waldorf whistle along with the theme song, which uh, makes sense given some of the musical choices. Uh, We do, in fact, have some developments to report in our yay evolution progression.
2: It's the Muppet show with our very special guest star, Miss Julie Andrews.
1: Ah! The Muppets, as we've said, and uh, as are we, are very enthusiastic about Julie Andrews being on the show. So uh, let's also hear Kermit's introduction to Julie Andrews' first number.
2: Hey, we're very excited around
0: here tonight. Our guest star is a wonderfully talented lady and a good friend of mine. And here she
2: is now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Julie Andrews.
4: Yay! Reminded me of the of the Ben Vereen and uh, all that jazz. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the talk show, the variety show host.
0: The film for which Julie Andrews, I think by then ex husband Tony Walton, won his Oscar.
4: Why? Yes, yes, he did. Uh, just, the, I mean, like there's a whole there's a the bit later that that we'll talk about um, where they're they're chatting. Like there's just like a, 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 hey, it's my our guest today is an old friend of mine. Like variety show feeling to this that we don't normally get with Kermit and the guest, even in a in a season one talk spot.
1: I guess Kermit doesn't have all that many friends.
4: It's true. <laughs> it ma- it makes sense for all the reasons David said. I just it's I just. It stood out to me as being different, not not in a bad way, just notable.
1: I mean, if your only friend is Julie Andrews, you're doing something right. It's true. And they've been friends since she was a fish, so. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> questions. I have questions. Uh, <laughs> I really liked the trumpet bit. <laughs> I did, too. It's interesting because when I watched it a second time, I was like, oh, of course you can totally see the lights on the trumpet before they light up, especially in HD. But like the first time I didn't. It's right. It's it's a neat little because you're not looking for it. It's just a neat little, little nice bit surprise. of technology. Yeah. Good job. 1977 illusion. Yeah. at Joe backstage.
1: Backstage on the show today, we somehow inexplicably have a live cow and nobody knows quite how it got there or what they're going to do about it. But everybody's trying to figure this out.
0: That's a real cow, all right. Scooter! Scooter, uh, refresh my memory. Uh, was there a cow in that opening number? No. Then what's a cow doing
2: backstage? That
3: cow,
4: that cow right there! Oh, Kermit, that's a cow! I know
2: what that's How did it get in
4: here? I guess he must have sneaked in.
2: Cows don't sneak,
0: snakes sneak. <laughs> I'll Find out who it belongs to.
4: Okay.
3: Who do you belong to? Uh,
0: Scooter! Oh, 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 okay, Chief, okay. I think they're going to love this show in Jersey.
1: It's a show full of frogs and dogs and bears and chickens and things, and they are astonished to see a cow. I am
4: troubled by Kermit's line, it's a real cow, all right, which implies that the Muppets are not real.
0: Well, they're real Muppets, and a Muppet cow would be a real Muppet cow, which is different from a real cow.
1: I mean, I believe in them.
0: Bothers me. I'm troubled by the way that Scooter is written as though he's had a brain injury. <laughs> I wonder if this was the inspiration for the writers of In Just Like That to approach Miranda in the 21st century.
4: <laughs> wow. Jeez. That was a reach, but okay.
2: I can hear Scooter referring to it as a comedy concert.
1: Anyway, Gonzo naturally sees the cow and thinks she is utterly bovine. Ah. Uh, uh. You got a great
3: pair of legs. <laughs> In fact,
1: she's got two
3: great pair of legs. <laughs> hey, uh, you wouldn't think about going into show business, would you?
1: <laughs> we at least have dinner with me. Promise?
2: <laughs> Gonzo!
1: Oh, I hope she does go into show business. She'd make a great hoofer.
4: <sighs> oh, my Michal. <laughs> <laughs> Some great comedy shtick.
1: So everyone's trying to figure out what to do with the cow... They give up on finding out where she came from and at some point just try to get rid of her. The chef offers to take care of her. Kermit finds him with a little paint palette in his hand and painting white lines on the cow, which is apparently the first step in making their barbecue. So
4: it's a butcher's chart. He's doing, he's, you know, deciding how to carve up the cow. This does not yeah, seem like how this would work, but...
1: choosing his favorite section. Yeah. The Flying Zucchini Brothers, they of the Human Cannonball Act, offered to get rid of the cow by changing their act to a cow cannonball act, though so I, I wish they had called it cow But that's me. Anyway, at the end of the episode, uh, it all comes together. I
3: really had a super time on the show. Oh, good. Except for one thing. Uh, what's that? Well, I seem to have lost my cow around here somehow.
0: <laughs> cow? That was your cow?
2: <laughs> what was that? Uh, 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 nothing. We'll
3: uh, oh, see you next time on the Muppet Show. Uh, Termites uh, about my cow. Uh, uh, it's well,
1: well, quite small. Yeah, well, it's a, a cow. lovely brown eyes oh, big lashes. I guess they figured out the cow boomba problem. <laughs> it's very
4: cute. It, it's um. That, that like devolves into full chaos under the music, and one of the uh, one of the pigs from Lonely Goat Herd, who was carrying hay, like in Lonely Goat Herd, comes on and is like, "I have the cows' lunch," <laughs> which is like such a such a good like reuse of that puppet, yeah, um, which I just thought was really clever. But this is like I think this is what I meant about like the sh- like the the episode flowing differently, or or like Christy said, feeling season one ish, like the way the backstage plot doesn't involve Julie Andrews at all. She, she, there's like these two talk spots that we'll talk about in a little bit. But then like, I like that they went out of their way to bring it around at the end, but I would have rather seen her backstage with the cow or whatever, or instead of the cow, <laughs> I don't know. Good job making it all pay off. But yeah, this is sort of what it, it felt. She felt very separate from all of this un- until this last moment.
1: Yeah. I almost wish they had tied it in a little more, like if there had been milkmaids in the opening numbered, or, but then also, it's a totally random cow that's just there which (laughs) which is
4: funny and also it's funny for julie to randomly for like julie andrews of all people to be like have you seen my cow like that's funny yeah Um, i just like i just think it it just is why it felt disjointed to me i don't i don't think like actually don't think having julie andrews interact with the cow would solve that. you know would would be better i think i just i just wanted more julie andrews
1: yeah totally incongruous cow is very satisfying incongruous it's very satisfying <laughs> <laughs> it's very satisfying and we get even more payoff at the end when we see gonzo in the cow instead of the usual and waldorf tag at the end of the theme song so uh, here's gonzo
3: I want to, uh, go to a
1: grab a steak <laughs> Also, the cow is in a very flattering straw hat with little flowers on it. She knows she's on a date.
4: <laughs> and Gonzo's little eyes, like he he seems to realize that he's made a mistake in saying grab a steak, which is a nice a nice touch.
1: Yeah, it's a little embarrassed eye flutter. <laughs> and then at the very, very end, when Zoot looks in his saxophone, there's a cow moo that comes out of it. Nice uh, extra effort. Yeah. Good job, Show.
4: Well, Michal, I admire how much you managed to milk that bit.
1: I got no beefs with this episode. High on
3: a hill was a lonely
1: goat herd Loud was the voice
3: of the
0: lonely goat herd That's where we are We make our own fun
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am entertained by us
0: You like this bit, you're gonna love Fozzie's comedy concert
2: And just like that, we're in the music section uh there's a lot of music as befits having a grand dame of musical theater as uh she's
4: not in most of it
2: yeah it's uh, which is depressing but uh she's in three songs that yeah it, yeah but there's a lot that she's not involved with but uh, there are for, six songs in the episode <laughs> yeah exactly so here we, uh, here we go we start with uh a julie andrew's classic
3: High on a hill was a lonely goat herd. Lady <laughs> Loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd. Lady folks in a town that was a quite remote herd. Lady <inaudible> <were inaudible> lady Lusty and clear from the goat herd's throat heard. Lady <inaudible> <inaudible> oh, oh lady of the <inaudible> oh, oh, lady of the lady.
2: Only Goat Herd, which is from uh, The Sound of Music, which is a Rodgers and Hammerstein show uh, that was made into a movie quite famously with Julie Andrews. This song is interesting because it it serves slightly different functions in the stage and film versions of The Sound of Music. It's like moved around even in different revivals of the show and the movie. It, it, it's a, a puppet show. It's a very elaborate puppet show. <laughs> In the original stage version, it's in the spot where my favorite things is, where she's using it to calm the children down after a storm, which well, that makes seems more like sense? An, does it?
4: Well, it makes more sense than forcing your adult party guests to watch your children perform a puppet show.
1: I don't know. That just seems I would like leave the Von Trap vibe.
4: <laughs> I mean yes it does, but
1: you're <laughs> anti puppet now?
4: I'm anti puppet showing up at an adult party and having a bunch of children perform for me unexpectedly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I also read somewhere that uh, the real Maria von Trapp threw shade at the, uh, the yodeling in the movie that she she felt like it it was not properly authentic. Julie
0: Andrews is very self-conscious about her yodeling. She knew she couldn't do it right. She did the best she could. She goes on at length about it in her book. Which is also interesting because she ended up falling in love with Switzerland and buying a home there and spending much of her uh, later life in Switzerland, which, although not where the sound of music takes place, is in the Alps and has a strong tradition of yodeling. Well, maybe she learned after the movie. Maybe. (laughs) She does okay. Yeah. If you ever go down a yodeling rabbit hole, as I'm not saying I ever have, but theoretically, (laughs) uh, this song has been adopted by... Professional yodelers, and there's all sorts of fascinating covers of it where real yodelers yodel the sound of music. I
4: did, I went and watched the the scene from the movie uh, again, and uh, like it's really the, the puppetry is really beautiful. It makes no sense, but like it's really like assuming you're listening to this uh, podcast, you probably are at least someone interested in puppetry. It's the puppets are gorgeous, and I recommend pulling it up on YouTube. Uh,
0: they're by and, Bill and Cora Baird, who were. Oh, that makes oh, sense. You know, among the, the great puppeteers of the early 20th century. Yeah.
4: I do enjoy how in this version, the goat herd is a goat. So he's herding himself, and then he ends up with a pig.
1: Does that mean he's like a cult leader? <laughs> yeah, Right? And then the duet becomes a trio. So the the goat and the pig get together. And then what does one call the the bouncing baby gigs? <laughs> you potes? know, I... Potes. I like I, potes. Re- I regretably fell down
2: the rabbit hole of "is that a thing?" Last night, well, must I don't be. necessarily I recommend a it. And
0: goats breed;
2: they must uh, have been crossbred I, I, at I some point. I didn't find pigs and goats. I found pigs and sheep, though
0: that
4: are scarier.
2: Uh, there, well, it, it, basically, uh, it was it was a pig with like f- the wool. It, it, it's wild looking. Huh. Uh, I will send you a picture. I don't necessarily wild recommend woolly. doing doing the Google because it also leads to some <laughs> sketchy places.
0: Well, but I, uh, I mis my Google as pigs and sheep bread, and there are adorable <laughs> little loaves in the shapes of pigs.
4: <laughs> okay, so do uh, they get us back on track, uh, David? In your in your research was this a is this a number that she would have done on talk shows variety shows or is it because it feels weird to me like i imagine she would have done my favorite things or me or yeah right
0: yeah Um, because this because especially people who knew from the film are used to like elaborate production so it's a weird number to do if you don't have puppets but here she has puppets right well yeah which is great which is
4: why i love it i love it very much and i love that she especially like in that clip we just heard like she she is singing so beautifully and so straight and like Clearly having a good time, but also like keeping a straight face while you know that goat is that Jerry Nelson oh, is just you. like singing so absurdly. <laughs> I love it. I love everything about it.
2: I tried to find some sort of like weird fun fact about the lonely goat herd, and I I came across this.
3: Loud was the voice of the lonely goat heard? Lay your lay your loo One little girl in a
2: pale pink coat hood Yeah, so, um, so since so the the Slovenian band Leibach, an industrial band, uh, they they did a whole album of Sound of Music covers, and they were the first Western band to play in North Korea. Partially because the Sound of Music is one of the only English language films allowed in North Korea. It's used to teach English in North Korea. Isn't that kind of weird? Huh. Terrifying,
0: hmm. especially because it's sort of an anti fascist film. Right.
4: It sort of reminds me of the the Adel version of edelweiss that is the theme song to man in the high castle which really bothers me because in the world of the men in the high castle the sound of music would not exist and rogers and hammerstein would be dead <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i mean they would like that's, there, that's there's a lot written, not to
0: like about that tv show
4: <laughs> well yeah yeah i stopped watching it after one season but um but like also the whole premise of the show that song would not exist
0: but yeah similar vibe there's a lot of really great and creative covers of Songs from The Sound of Music, so we'll gather a bunch for the show notes.
1: Like Judy Collins singing Do Re Mi, for example. <laughs> it's true.
4: My only nitpick about this number is um, at the end, the whole gang is is in like a like a house, and and Julie Andrews sits in front of them and like just totally ruins the scale of everything. Which is the thing I feel like they're usually very good at, like not breaking that illusion on the show. It's still adorable. Didn't bother me? Yeah, I know. It's still adorable. It's just something about it just looked really weird.
1: She's part of the puppet show. True.
2: It's a good way to look at it. Bravo! I
1: love the goat!
2: Yeah, he would! The old goat! <laughs> we get a, a Gonzo performance art number.
4: Do we feel like we have to set this up?
2: Do we do we need I to I don't know. Gonzo's mean...
4: playing the bagpipes. Let's just let's
2: Yeah. yeah.
4: An early ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, it's a very famous piece of music, "Eine kleine music by Mozart from 1787. Extreme shout out to the public domain. The title was actually sort of a throwaway comment written down by Mozart when he wrote it, which like meant like a little serenade. It, I mean, it, it's rendered literally as a little night music, which ended up being the title of a Stephen Sondheim musical later.
0: Shout out to Judy Collins
2: yeah oh, man the clowns they're, they're always here <laughs> <laughs> don't bother whether whether, yeah. <laughs> whether whether we want them or not they're they're, they're already here yep yeah. but uh, uh apparently you know it, it was wasn't like a thing that he'd like done formally it was just like oh here's a cute little thing that i wrote and like like and it was just like oh here's a little ditty and like you know now it's like <laughs> looked on like oh i'm gonna kind of knock music
1: my ringtone from 1999 <laughs>
2: Yeah, so Gonzo's playing the bagpipes and like f- flagpole sitting, <laughs> and the flagpole gets chewed up by a beaver—a very smug beaver. Yeah, very
4: cute smug beaver, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, my high school mascot was the Highlander. So, oh no, like yeah, a Scottish person, like a Scottish, yeah. So that meant that there was at least one poor kid a year who had to learn how to play the bagpipes and
4: like as punishment <laughs>
2: I mean, it's it's Indiana. Who knows? I mean, it was definitely punishment for the rest of us because, it, you know, all these school functions would be like, oh, no, the bagpipes are coming out again. But my, my school newspaper, for which I was the uh, arts and entertainment editor, was the
1: bagpiper. You haven't lived until you've been um, on the sound crew for a folk festival and put away the sound for one session while everybody from the next session is piling in. And it turns out the next session is just a bunch of bagpipers crowding into a tiny room. <sighs> like, no. this is a Marx Brothers movie gone wrong. No, no. <laughs> you're it- trying to coil cables, and the sound is just getting louder and louder and louder oh, and, more an and more. It's an outdoor listening. instrument. Yes, it is. <laughs> but not at that particular music festival. Oof. I recorded it and just called the recording holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: you're made of heartier stuff than I am.
4: Yeah, so the the beaver chews through the pole he's sitting on. Uh, he's very cute. Gonzo falls. And then offstage Kermit apologizes for, for the beaver getting in. And, and Gonzo is upset. And he says, I just fell 11 feet onto solid concrete. The stage is made of solid concrete?
1: Gonzo doesn't sound upset necessarily. Well,
4: you know, but fair. But my point is, the stage is made of solid concrete? <laughs> That's not right. It's not how you make a stage.
2: We also get a slightly puzzling Ralph piano bit. Part of that was Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Ralph is playing and the moon starts to rise and he gets distracted and then starts playing wrong and badly. I don't know why he's distracted by the moon being there. It, it's a weird bit. It's a really weird bit.
4: And it's just like, clearly I like you, which you'd think would be... <laughs> maybe he wasn't expecting to like
0: you. I mean, maybe. Him off guard.
4: Yeah,
1: imagine... If you suddenly discover that you had the power to make the moon rise just by playing piano, you would be a bit unsettled.
0: Or maybe the audience laughter throws him off.
1: Why are they
4: laughing? I don't understand what's funny.
0: And what's funny is that he's playing the Moonlight Sonata, and then suddenly the moon appears. Sure.
2: Yeah, so the Moonlight Sonata, that title actually wasn't the original title. It it comes from a a critic's comment after Beethoven died, actually. It's actually Piano Sonata Number 14 in C Sharp Minor. That he marked quasi una fantasia. It's from 1801, <sighs> and it's it's very fun to play. We have a a recurring comedy bit in my family involving this piece of music <laughs> because I, I I played this in piano lessons for a, a very long time in high school, and my br- brother took piano lessons for a little bit, but wasn't really a pianist. So like this piece of music sat on the piano for a long time. And so, like, my brother learned how to play, like, the first, like, four measures, eight measures of this. And he would do this thing where my, my mom would be in a totally different part of the house. And he'd yell, Mom! Mom! Come here! Quick! Quick! And she'd run in, and he'd say, I wrote you a song. And he'd play the first four measures of <laughs> Four Lights like And it was just, it was one of those things that just, with repetition, got dumber and funnier <laughs> every time. <laughs> Years. This went on for years. Like my mom would run, What? What? What's going on? What's going on? I wrote you a song. Do, 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 <laughs> do, do, do. <laughs> anyway. Excellent. So speaking of Gonzo, things get sad for Gonzo.
3: And now the band is playing very slow. And once again, I'll get. My coat and go a lonely walk. Flower waiting by the wall without the will. Power to face the music at all.
1: Please,
3: won't somebody dance with me? Start up a romance
2: with me. Poor Gonzo. Mm. It's so sweet. It's not a very good song, but it's it's sweet. <laughs> but
1: then it pays off. Somebody it does, does off. dance with him. Yeah.
4: Well, I found funny if you if you type the the title of the song which is Won't somebody dance with me into YouTube, you will get it, but like the third result is Whitney Houston's I want to dance with somebody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure.
4: Which is the same sentiment in a much better song, which I just thought was funny.
1: And not Gonzo finding Chicken in a sparkling ball gown and no. twirling with her for like a full minute.
4: For that, I had to add Muppets to the search.
1: <laughs> so the song uh, is called
2: won't somebody dance with me. It was written by Lindsay DePaul in 1973. It won the Ivor Novello award, uh, which is a British songwriting award also won by a don't go break in my heart. And it made the Irish UK and Dutch top twenties. And Interestingly, Lizzie DePaul, the first British woman to score an international number one hit with a song that she'd written. Oh. So that's cool. She's an interesting character. I, I had never heard of her, and I I found her fascinating. She dated a bunch of interesting, famous men, including Ringo Starr, Dudley Moore, the potentially fictitious Bernie Toppin, and she lived in a supposedly haunted gothic house with a three-legged cat named Tripod. <laughs> So I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Is she still around?
2: No, she died in 2014, sadly. She died uh, of a brain hemorrhage unexpectedly. Ooh. It shocked all of her friends because apparently she was a vegetarian and she didn't drink. And she took really good care of herself and she just unexpectedly died. Hmm. Yeah.
4: And in the um, the original recording of this um it's it's so weird. It's so like seventies disco. Um, the there's a vo- like a male voice says, "May I have this dance or something?" And then the like instrumental happens. So like this the the ending of this with Gonzo and the chicken is not actually a up at interpretation to give it a happy ending. It ha- even though there's no additional lyrics, it has that happy ending, uh, which is sort of wild, and I love it.
1: We should also mention that in the Muppet interpretation, it starts with uh, a a rendering of the At the Dance theme. And we see a bunch of Muppets dancing, including Kermit and Miss Mousy dancing together while Piggy dances with another pig. Like Kermit dancing with Miss Mousy is nothing to get worked up about. (laughs) Miss Piggy
0: isn't in this episode otherwise, right? No.
1: So I think her only appearance.
0: I was really proud of myself that when the At the Dance music started, I did not fall for the fake out because I recognized that it was a different like a slightly different arrangement of the music. Ooh,
4: well done. Mm -hmm. I did fall for it, but I'm also, I I love when they do this though. So (laughs) I didn't mind. Uh, I think one of the dancers is Wanda in a new wig. And I was happy to see her overly made up face.
2: Yeah. And now for something completely different. Way down South, way down in Borneo, there's a wild man called the Borneo way down on Borneo Bay. Even though you've got a corneo, you'll dance till the break of Donio, way down on Borneo Bay. <laughs> Wild man stand with his clothes all corneo, toot, toot, toots on his bamboo horneo. Round the bamboo, baby, start to sway. Start to sway.
0: This song is super racist, right? It's at least a little racist. <laughs> it's okay. got
2: I- to be, Yeah. I didn't look up the lyrics to actually... Because this is another one "The like Lonely Goat Herd where like it, it does enough of that like weird rhyming for the sake of rhyming that you sort of lose track of it. But yeah, it's from 1928 by uh, Walter Donaldson. It's first recorded by Ben Burney and his Hotel Roosevelt Orchestra. And yeah, this is L- Lubbock Lou and his Jug Huggers. You know what? I am going to stand up for the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band. I think they're better. I just do. I I like that Louise Gold has something to do, you know, like that that gives it a little, you know, vocal variation. But I just find these guys less pleasant.
0: I definitely will at least give you that they're better puppets. Uh, Musically, I'm not sure they're so different. (laughs) This song was on a couple of different Muppet Show albums that I had as a kid. It was on Muppet Show Two, which I had as a little kid, and then Muppet Hits, which I had in high school, and. I think when I say this is my second least favorite drug band song, it's probably just that it's the one that I heard the second most (laughs) after (laughs) Mississippi Mud, but it also has that similar, like, slightly uncomfortable harmony thing that uh, Mississippi Mud has that I think makes me hate it in the same way.
4: Mm. I don't hate this. (laughs) I kind of like the dad jokey rhymes. And um, I mean, I'm I'm never going to go listen to it again, but like,
0: I thought it was kind of fun. So uh, we looked up the lyrics, and I don't know that the lyrics themselves are necessarily racist, because it's talking about dancing to a song in Borneo, but then it references the wild men of Borneo, which Adam can tell us about.
4: Well, it's a little unclear. So the wild men of Borneo were a pair of exceptionally strong dwarf brothers who were most famously associated with P.T. Barnum. That's from Wikipedia. So there's that whole thing of, you know ooh, look at the exotic, quote-unquote, humans. So I don't love that. But, yeah, I mean, they do they do reference the wild man of Borneo in the song. Um, it doesn't seem great. It's its no Mad Dog's an Englishman, but it doesn't seem great.
2: Our next Julie Andrews number is a Julie Andrews original.
3: When you were a tadpole and I was a fish... When the whole world had barely begun as far back as yet I saw you swim by with a smile in your eye and I loved you from that moment on. That's a lovely with thought
2: i love kermit's reaction because it's you like it's, it's very sweet but at the same time there is that slight edge to it of like you know he while well, she's singing the song to me and you know i'm 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 really trying to encourage that
4: <laughs> well it's also it's that sort of <laughs> that same variety show cheese that we were yeah. talking about earlier like he's heard this song before <laughs>
1: Yeah. And that's why he has to interject his own opinions while Julie Andrews is trying to sing. <laughs> well, I think
0: it's more that they recognize that the song is boring as fuck and if their <laughs> audience includes children they need to do something to keep them attentive.
4: Maybe. I don't know. let's play the let's play the intro which I found very sweet but again it's that it's that thing that we were talking about.
1: Come on.
3: you've really been busy since I saw you last.
0: Oh, yeah, we've been doing this show and all that stuff. Oh, and
3: I love the shows. I watch them every week.
0: Oh, hey, that's nice. See, but uh, you know one thing: a lot of people don't know about you is that you write children's books.
3: Mm, I really enjoy doing that
0: too. And you also write songs. Well, I wrote one for you. Remember? You wrote one for me. Oh, Kermit, how could you have forgotten? Oh, I didn't forget. We did it on a special of yours a couple of years ago. That's
3: right.
0: Hey, would you do that now? Oh, I thought you'd
2: never ask.
0: Actually, I I knew she was going to do it. So cheesy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So cheesy. It's it's very sweet. It is they very have sweet. a lot of love for each other. They do,
4: and it's also like it's an acknowledgement of the Muppets, like showbiz lives outside of the Muppet Show, which I feel like we we never really get.
2: So this is a song for Kermit, also known as "When You Were a Tadpole," and as Julian Kermit mentioned, it was originally written for a 1975 special called "My Favorite Things." And uh, Julie wrote it with uh, Hal Shaper, who was a South African songwriter working in London at that time, who wrote for Elvis, Barbara Streisand, David Bowie, and noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra. There he is. Oh, thank
1: goodness. Yeah.
4: <laughs> this metaphor does not hold up to, hold up to scrutiny.
1: No, not <laughs> remotely. Okay. So <laughs> Julie Andrews is just trying to express her love for Kermit. And her love for Kermit is as pure as the driven snow. And you're just going to question her metaphors. Uh, yeah. If, if Dame Julie Andrews tells me that she personally evolved from a fish, who am I to question?
4: Well, so that's actually my question. So is that what's happening? Or because, well, I mean, is that what's happening? Because also frogs don't evolve from tadpoles. They just age. So that's the first problem. <laughs> well, it's like, that's a two part problem because also humans don't evolve from fish. and or. Is it that like they were together when they were young, but now they can't be together because she like she's now an old fish and he is a frog and therefore no longer lives in the water like a tadpole? Like it just the second you think about it, it's what are you talking about?
1: I think she loves him so much that even in any previous lives she might have had, she loved him then, too.
0: So this is a reference. Uh, She did not originate the line when you were a tadpole and I was a fish.
1: I thought you were going to say she did not evolve from a fish. I was ready to be angry. (laughs) You might have.
0: Um, So it's actually the, the, is it the first line? Yeah. It's the first line of a poem called evolution by a poet named Langdon Smith, who is more famous as a journalist. This is the only poem of his that really had any kind of lasting shocking impact. And uh, the poem comes from 1895 ish. That was when the beginning of it was published uh, it was published in full in 1906, and then posthumously published and illustrated and annotated in a book called *Evolution of Fantasy* in 1909. And the poems not bad. Like the the point here is not about like you were literally a tadpole and I was literally a fish because the the rest of the first stanza is when you were a tadpole and I was a fish in the Paleozoic time, and side by side in the ebbing tide we sprawled through the ooze and the slime, or skittered with many a caudule flip through the depths of the Cambrian Fen, my heart was rife with the joy of life, for I loved you even then. So it's the idea of being like a timeless love that traverses the generations in space and time, not literally we evolve from right,
4: Yeah, that makes more sense. The the problem comes when you start singing it to an actual frog. (laughs) (laughs) And then it it feels very literal. Yeah. I mean, it's very sweet. And, you know, if we weren't... Assholes? Yeah. If we weren't assholes with a podcast, (laughs) then I would never have thought about it. This much, I would have just watched the episode and gone. That's very
0: sweet, but here we are,
1: but here we are,
0: I think the song's a little bit of a yawn, yeah, but it's a short yawn, sure, yeah. it just feels a little more like children's television than most of the mom show does, yeah, that's fair.
1: if they had placed this in the the forest of despair or one of those settings rather than in the dressing room, and Kermit was snuggling up to Julie Andrews somewhere other than the dressing room, would it make more sense?
0: That would help, and it would also help if there was live video of a real tadpole swimming around with a real fish that was sort of superimposed over their heads. Not really. That just feels like a thing they might do.
2: So, we end back on terra firma Julie Andrews wise. Whenever
3: I feel afraid I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid what <laughs> shivering in my shoes? I start the careless pose And whistle a happy tune And no one ever knows I'm afraid
4: <laughs> She's just trying to get to her comedy concert, guys. Leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, yep. So this is a, a Whistle a Happy Tune from The King and I, another Rodgers and Hammerstein number, this time from 1951. And not one that Julie Andrews is directly associated with, though she
1: has recorded it. It feels like it's very closely related to my favorite things, where when I thought about it, I, I was sure that I associated the song with her, even though I don't. And then I realized that there's some kind of relationship there.
0: Look, Rodgers and Hammerstein, top of their game, very good at what they do. They do have certain song types that map directly from one show to the next. And yeah. You can be forgiven if you get climb every mountain confused with you'll never walk alone or I whistle a happy tune with my favorite things, etc. Yeah. Getting uh, to know you would go right
4: Similarly, I think I confuse this sketch with the Madeleine Khan I'm not afraid of you Monster in the Park sketch. That
1: makes sense. Right. It's so a very get, similar setup.
4: Yeah, and that's get started and I remember feeling like, "Oh yeah, this, I remember this. Oh wait, this is kind of boring." <laughs> and then this started and I was like, "Oh, cuz I thought it was this one which is better."
0: It looks like it could be an outtake from Up at Saunted Mansion, doesn't it?
4: <laughs> the set is very similar. Also like There's a set though. Yes. Also like viewed as an adult like in 2022 like very menacing. Like sort of not not that funny. To have yeah. this young woman walking through the park being harassed.
1: Yeah, I hope she has something with her besides a happy tune.
0: I was a happy tune and also carry a can of mace. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I carry a can of Like, it all works out okay. <laughs>
4: and I understand, you know, the monsters in the Muppet Show are basically friendly. But, like, <laughs> it is, like, it's...
0: It gets, and the punchline is, like, they're not trying to eat her. They're trying to get her out of
4: Yeah. But, like, it's it gets tense. It gets... There's a lot... And, of course, she's such a good actress, right? Like, she actually plays it pretty real.
0: Well, and she has lived through the experience of being hounded by autograph-seeking fans in a way Wait that's all-threatening. Yeah. The funny thing to me about this is, on the one hand, this is exactly what the Muppets do best, where they take a song and then, like, overly literalize the lyrics to turn it into something physical. But then, in the late 90s, some of you may remember that there was a extremely misbegotten animated adaptation of The King and I.
4: Oh, I have watched that Oof. recently, and I, how did that happen on every level? I don't know, level? but this is
0: essentially I saw what saw it in the theater. D- <laughs> I did, too. Uh, in fact, it's the only time I've gone to the movies where me and the friend I went with were the only people in the theater. <laughs> but this is basically what they do to this song in that movie, except that they're on a boat, so it's sea monsters. But, like, you're singing the song as the boat gets, like, <laughs> attacked by sea monsters, which is... You know, pretty early on in the movie, so it told you exactly what the rest of the <laughs> thing was going to be.
2: And
4: <laughs> well, you, that we number is racist, but yeah, it tells you a right. lot about what the movie's going to be.
2: Yeah, it's a weird assortment of monsters. There's a handful of mutations, which I, th- I feel like has got to be the first time that the mutations have been used explicitly as monsters, right?
1: I think that's true. I mean, they've been used in a menacing way before.
0: Well, I mean, the Sandy Duncan drunken bar fight Song say that sometimes fast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that they were necessarily menacing, but I think the the idea was that the setting was sort of a hangout for no good nicks. Right.
4: It's weird to see Timmy being so aggressive.
0: Sweet. Weird to see Timmy at all because this I think is the debut of a newly redesigned Timmy, and he looked off to me.
4: Uh, Uncle Deadly shows up. I didn't even notice him until I was editing the gifs, and I had like caught him on one and not realized he was there. I was like, oh look, it's Uncle Deadly. He just like walks by at one point
2: i i definitely didn't notice him i i did notice the hand pushing up out of the coffin though that was very oh, oh I, missed that.
4: I didn't yeah wow
1: yeah towards the end yikes huh well this sketch made me feel a lot of feelings <laughs>
4: <laughs> i do feel like it's been a while since we've had like a big production number like this like there's a lot of full body muppets on this it is fully choreographed by norman Maine. And, you know, for whatever quibbles I have with it, I found it quite delightful. And also her pink trench coat. We must mention yes. her pink trench coat.
2: Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey.
1: What? And get out of show business. For an episode that has a lot of music, we also have uh, a little bit of show business. So let's talk about the Muppet News Flash, which is brief, and predictable, yet satisfying.
2: A plane carrying a load of sports equipment was forced to jettison some of its cargo. Among the items tossed out were 10,000 ping pong
3: balls (laughs) and
2: one bowling
3: ball.
1: The way he reads that is like, oh, yes, as he arrives at the bowling ball line, he's like, oh, of course. They wrote a bowling ball in here. I'm going to be hit in the head with a bowling ball. And then he is. That's nice. Uh, There is something akin to a talk spot, although it's not in our usual talk spot set, but Still, Julie Andrews is hanging out with Kermit. She's been wanting to ask him something, um, but she keeps getting interrupted by Muppets who are flying back and forth over their heads and by other Muppets coming on stage to report what's going on. So we're told that uh, Robin got stuck in a tuba, but don't worry, Animal got him out. And then Animal blows on the tuba, presumably, and Robin flies over their heads. And we're told the Flying Zucchini Brothers want to show Kermit their act. And there are Flying Zucchini Brothers coming from both directions. And then we're told that Sweetums and Thog are playing badminton with a chicken.
0: No, I, I'm sorry, Julie. You were trying badminton. to
3: say. When I Sweetums and fog are playing badminton. So? While you're playing with my chicken. Uh, oh. 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 Uh, Julie, you were asking. Oh, uh, nothing. i just wondering what these guys did for entertainment around here. Oh, uh, nothing much. <laughs>
1: At this point, there are a lot of Muppets lined up on stage just watching Chickens and Zucchini Brothers and Robin flying back and forth uh, like they're watching a tennis match. And Fozzie yelling foul is the the greatest line of dialogue this week, I'm pretty sure.
0: I am incredibly creeped out by Gonzo referring to the chicken as my chicken.
1: I wondered about that, too. How many chickens does Gonzo associate with and does he own them and also date them. I mean, I think,
4: oh uh, this is, uh, wow. We're going to go there. I, there is, <laughs> I think we've established a hierarchy of Muppet animals, right? Like we've, we've seen a, we've seen muppy at this point, the chickens don't talk. Right. Except so when I think they the, do what,
0: except when they do, when they they do act but the dance or whatever. R-
4: yes. But primarily Muppet chickens don't talk. Uh, so I think that there are like pets and farm animals within Muppet World who and on are, the bottom
1: rung are real animals <laughs> like that e- cow
4: exactly who are owned the way we own pets and farm animals and at this stage Gonzo is not yet dating a chicken so I think I think he has chickens I think he keeps chickens like one would keep chickens. And maybe they're like his performing chickens, like the like the
0: Muppophone. I don't know. Like he was dancing with a chicken in a ball gown not ten minutes ago.
1: So we've clocked to the moment where Gonzo has realized that he doesn't actually want to own a troop of performing chickens. He wants to go out with them. Or, or that's part of that. It didn't them.
4: it didn't work out with the dancing cheese. So he trained the chicken or the cow. to dance. <laughs> and that's and then they, they built a sketch around it.
0: Yeah, I don't buy that. I think the chickens have already been established as, like, higher level. I mean, way back in the first episode when they were part of the choir, uh, but also in order to be able to do things like sing Babyface or deliver one-liners and At The Dance. Like, the chickens are not pets or livestock. They're colleagues they might be you know not your brightest colleagues but they're colleagues right
4: but are they part of his troupe? are they like part of his of his act would it be like my you know my singers my chorus my uh,
0: maybe, my ba- my backup singers yeah one but of that's my really chorus really, really not
4: established yeah. Right. yeah no it's a stretch i'm i am stretching here but i
1: but they said one of my chickens for a reason and i did wonder about it so
2: so I have a couple of things uh, to say about this that have nothing to do with the chicken. Oh, thank uh, God! <laughs> uh, one is unlike the season one talk spots. There's a really elaborate backdrop. That it kind of mm-hmm. looks like like one of the the backdrops in one of the fake operas in Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> it
4: does. I think it's the um <laughs>
2: like oh the the ballet from Il Buto. Um,
4: I think it's the um it's the it's the the we've seen that backdrop before, right? It's the what are those called? The in season oh, one. with the, the, black oh, the blackout sketches. Yeah, the blackout yeah. sketch backdrop. I think yeah, it's so that. That sounds right. But it's then there's, there's, a, there's a wall in front of it, so we don't see the whole thing.
0: I mean, it's also yeah, it's very not elaborate. so different from the park backdrop that
4: Father yeah. tells jokes about Yeah, me. it's one of those. Yeah.
2: Um, I'm also here for Julie's, like, gauzy blue shirt under the black vest. Even though her clip on Mike is super prominent in a way that they almost no. never are. <laughs> um, also... I just I love this bit of like stuff flying in the background. It's so basic and so Well, like, funny. when
4: I, Robin goes by, like it's just so clear that someone just threw Robin, <laughs> just threw the puppet. It,
2: it reminded me of I was in a production of Pippin in high school where during the the war sequence, we were given uh like rubber hands and arms and feet to throw. Uh-huh. And it was <laughs> And the thing was, it was funny, but like one night somebody, so there, there's a, like a baby in Pippin and we used a baby doll. And, um, one night somebody decided to throw the baby doll, yeah. the hands and feet, which <laughs> was hilarious, but it made, yeah, could you not? it made our, our drama teacher so mad. And after the show, he like just chewed into that the kid who did it was just like, that was in such poor taste. And all the rest of us were like, and the hands and Have you feet seen not <laughs>
0: wow it's
4: like
2: it was hilarious right? yeah no it worked so well tony
0: walton won one of his three tonys for designing pippin
4: there you go well and just like in like the whole bit with like the way that they 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 all get in sync including julie andrews with their heads moving back and forth and then she yeah. like leans on her hand i was like oh i guess i'm not going to talk to kermit and just like watches it's <laughs> it's all so good um yeah and this is like with the cow right like if the cow is the a plot, like. Julie and Kermit trying to have a conversation is sort of the B plot, and then they wind up in the dressing room with the clip we already heard. It's very disjointed, but it's also like they're just really good together. Like Jim Henson and Julie Andrews are really great together. And it's it's yeah. it's fun to watch.
0: And you're right, this does sort of serve the purpose of the backstage interaction it just happens to be happening on stage.
4: Right. Because then it does continue, like right, their their conversation before um Tadpole is is an extension of this of like, okay, we're alone now, we can We can chat.
1: We can sing about fish.
4: Yes. We just, we played them out of order, but that's, that's what actually happens.
1: Shall we talk about Sam? Yes, please. All right. So Sam's got a bone to pick with a group that I find surprising, honestly.
4: Have you met Republicans? (laughs) Sam is anti-regulation.
2: Yay, verily. Today, the very fiber of our industrialization is under attack from a
3: small sub- coercive group of namby-pamby
2: conservationists. These weirdos would stop the march of progress for the sake of a few insignificant animals.
1: So this doesn't make sense if you think about it even a little bit, because you'd think that Sam would be in favor of preserving majestic American wildlife species. I mean, I get that they need to build to him finding out that American bald eagles are in need of protection.
4: Right. But again, I mean, but Sam's a Republican, like Sam is, Sam is against hippie environmentalists regulating. Well, no, but he's, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is the thing. This is a real thing. Like he is against hippie environmentalists regulating for the sake of the environment.
1: I can mostly buy that Sam is whatever against whatever he's against, but this feels like a little bit of a stretch to me. I mean, they might have come up with this line first, so he holds up a list. and Do, do we want to hear it?
3: I have here a list, <laughs> a list of the animals these so-called conservationists would have us protect.
1: So I heard that it was a laugh line, and I figured out from context that this might have been something famous that Joe McCarthy said, but I, I didn't know about it from before, but it, it would make sense if it was in the air still in the 70s.
4: Yeah. If you but- Google, I have here a list, it, it points to a, an early Joe McCarthy speech claiming to have a list of communists, which apparently he didn't. <laughs> he made it up. We do <laughs> What that, was right? he
1: holding up then?
4: Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> and then of course, you know, the American bald eagle is on the list. And so then he backs down because it's a Sam joke.
1: Yeah. The list is now inoperative, yeah. which... I guess expecting Sam or Republicans to make sense exactly is asking a lot.
4: This one hit a little too close to like wait, we're still having this argument. I didn't like it politically speaking. Did not <laughs> did not find it funny. But that's not the show's fault. That's that's reality's fault.
1: Alas. And finally, a Muppet Lab sketch. Bunsen presents Muppet Lab's hair-growing tonic, which he tests on Beaker by vigorously massaging some tonic into Beaker's scalp. Uh, Beaker's entire head of hair blasts straight up into the air, which also leaves a gaping hole on the top of his head. Bunsen is totally untroubled by this, and he giggles that we should rename it hair-raising tonic rather than hair-growing <laughs> tonic, which, sure.
4: Is the hole visible? I miss that.
1: I mean, there's steam coming out of the top of his head.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I was very aware of the... The dry and it's dry ice i think so there's like they had to have put something in there
1: i guess so maybe the hole was implied i felt like i could see it but i'm I,
4: i'm sure you could i just missed it
1: <laughs> i mean i could see like the edge of his wig as he's having his scalp massaged which makes sense given that they're about to blast it off his head
0: well we have reached the end of everything that happens in this episode does anyone have final thoughts to wrap us up
1: Well, I was going to ask if anybody has a a recommendation for a favorite Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett sketch to look up.
2: I I do, actually. Um, uh, Well, a a thing to listen to from one of their shows, they did this medley of songs from the 60s that's like 15 minutes long uh, that I've been listening to all week that's hilarious. It's definitely on Spotify. Uh, It's probably on YouTube. That's from
0: their Lincoln Center concert, right?
2: I think so, yeah.
0: Uh, also, in their first special together, the Carnegie Hall one, before Julie Andrews was ever associated with the sound of music, they did a parody of the sound of music, uh, which is pretty funny.
4: We'll put both of those in the show notes. Excellent.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week with an explosive discussion of the JP Morgan episode. That will be funny after you've watched the JP Morgan episode. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy, or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer, our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus, and this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Uh, How did it go last week? Uh, You know, it was a little, it's going to be a short episode.
4: Well, I talk a lot, so... (laughs) (laughs)